Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. My name is Tom, you may know me as the creator of Like Stories of Old, and I'm joined by fellow video essayist Thomas Flight to talk about Drive My Car, directed by Reisuke Hamaguchi, which won this year's Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Thomas, you've seen it twice now, right? Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts on uh, Drive My Car? I really enjoyed Drive My Car. There's a lot of things about this movie that I think are right up my alley. I love Japanese film. I'm a fan of Haruki Murakami. I'm a fan of some of his writing, and this is based on one of his stories. And the themes that this film explores, I enjoy movies about, like loss and people grappling with grief and trying to come to terms with that. And I kind of like slow movies with beautiful cinematography when it feels like there's intent and a kind of a purpose to that. So there's a lot of things that are right up my alley with this. And I enjoyed it both times. I'm not a person who cries a lot watching movies. And two movies from 2021 made me cry. Pig was one and this one. Mm -hmm. uh, and it made me cry both times too, which is rare. Like if a movie makes me cry on the first watch, it won't necessarily get me on the second. But literally just like 20 minutes ago, I was finishing up my rewatch and it got me again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. There's, there's a lot I like about this movie, but it'll be interesting to discuss because it's a very enigmatic film. Like it's not, I don't know. It's hard to describe what's going on here. There's a lot. And I don't know if I can articulate exactly what I like about it very easily. So it might be a little bit difficult to talk about. Yeah. And it might end up being more of like a springboard for talking about other things than like an easy film to talk about itself. So uh, we'll see where this discussion leads. But I'm curious what your thoughts on it were watching it. Did it put you to sleep? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> it almost did the first time. I, I will say that as much as I love it, it's very like meditative. Uh huh. And I was sitting there in the theater and I almost fell asleep watching it the first time. So I say that even loving it. So <laughs> Yeah, so I've only seen it the one time right now at home, so not in a movie theater. But as you said, it's very much a mood piece. And I also think you need to be in the right mood to really appreciate it. If you cannot level with this film, I'm not sure you're going to get anything meaningful out of it, or at least not as much as if you're on the same sort of wavelength. But for me, actually, the first time I watched it, I was... Uh, actually a bit tired so I was kind of in doubt like am I gonna watch it tonight or am I gonna postpone it but I turned it on anyways and I didn't fall asleep but at the same time it didn't overwhelm me as much as it did for some others I think it's also because it's been a bit overhyped for me maybe I've seen like a lot of people around me saying it's like one of the best films of the year it's like so impactful and moving and so I, I went in expecting a lot and then it's relatively quiet and subdued and understated. So in first watch, it didn't connect with me as much as I'd hoped. But in the days after, I've like, the more I thought about it, like before recording this podcast and the more I did like some research, the more I came to appreciate it. And I think if I'd watch it again right now, especially when I know what to expect. And of course, now I'll deliberately put it on when I feel like I'm in the mood for it. And I think um, it's going to move me a lot more. But yeah, overall, I think it's a wonderful film. I think it has some beautiful messages about just everyday people coping with the struggles of life. As you said, it's at the same time time it's very simple but yet still it can be profound if you allow it to be i think yeah 
because thinking back on it now, like it's it's three hours long, but in my mind, it doesn't feel like a lot happened in those three hours. The plot, to, in my memory, it feels much shorter, especially because the setup is so long. The first 40 minutes, that's basically prologue. And then we see the title card. <laughs> yeah, when that title card hits the first time, I was very surprised in the theater. I was like, you get 40 minutes in and then suddenly there's like music playing and like a, a, a title sequence. Yeah, I saw someone tweet about it. So it's that had been spoiled for me. Like I was kind of waiting for, okay, is it, are they going to wrap up this intro now? Or like how long am I, am I into this movie? Yeah, so basically the story is, at least in this prologue, there's a actor slash theater director who comes to discover that his wife is having an affair and he doesn't confront her and he tries to, he like pretends everything is okay afterwards. She doesn't know that he knows, or at least he doesn't think that she knows that he knows. And then the wife suddenly dies and that's the first 40 minutes or so. Then we get the title card and then the story jumps ahead to, I think it was two years later. I think it's three years later. It kind of picks up in this situation where he's putting on a play as a part of an artist residency. And then there's kind of the setup for the main story, which is that he has this routine of learning a play in his car, kind of driving to and from a location. He has this tape that his wife recorded one side of the play, Uncle Vanya, all the lines. And then there's the spaces left for his part as Uncle Vanya. And so he has this routine of like listening to the tape and reciting his lines during this drive. And because he got in this car accident, which also happens in the prologue, and they discover that he's losing his vision in his eye, there's this series of events that leads to him needing to have a driver. Somebody else has to drive his car to and from this play location an hour each way. And he has this car that he's very like precious and like takes very good care of and he's very particular about. It's like an older sob. So he's very hesitant to let this young woman like drive the car as his driver. But after a test drive, eventually he agrees. And that's kind of the setup for the main arc of the movie, which is like putting on the play and his kind of unlikely relationship with this driver of his car and how that develops. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie, there are some like spoilers towards the end of the movie that I'm sure we'll get into at some point. But I will say this is also a movie where like the plot twists or revelations aren't like what's most impactful about the movie. So you might be able to listen to this, you know, if you don't care that much anyway and get something out of it. I don't think the spoilers are that significant, but uh, that's not even explaining the weird element of his wife is a television writer and she like recites these stories in her sleep after they have sex and he like remembers them and then tells them back to her in the morning. And that comes back into play later in the story. And he's left with like this open book without much closure because the night before he comes back and finds her dead of a brain aneurysm, I think that's what a cerebral hemorrhage mm -hmm. before he left that day, she was like, when you get back, I want to talk to you. Like, let's talk. So like he was left with this like massive hanging, unknowing like question of like, what did she want to talk about? Did she know? What did she want to say to him? And he's like carrying all this into the main crux of the story. Like you said, it, there's not a lot going on in terms of plot, but there's a lot of weird mm -hmm. things happening. Um, yeah. It's kind of like the first time I watched it, a central 
element of this is the play Uncle Vanya. That's the play he's putting on. And we actually get a lot of segments from the play in the movie, whether it's through the tape that he's listening to or seeing them rehearse the play or snippets that are being performed. We get these little bits and pieces of the play here and there. And the snippets that we're hearing are kind of relevant to, or at least there's an interplay between those things and the film itself. So I enjoyed that the first time I watched it, but I also, I'd never been exposed to Uncle Vanya. I hadn't read it. I hadn't seen the play. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I might've been missing something. I'm curious what your experience with that was, if you had any familiarity with the play or how you felt about how much of the play is in this movie. Yeah, I did not know the play at all before I saw the film. So I also, I wasn't exactly sure like how accurate the performances of, as you said, there's like a bunch of lines and monologues, like even one of the great final monologues is straight from the play, apparently, like I checked it afterwards, but I didn't necessarily like register that when I was watching it the first time. Plus there's the whole thing where it's not just an adaptation, but it's an adaptation in like multiple different languages, which I didn't at first like see the exact meaning of. Like it, I think their play is like maybe originally Russian, it's from Chekhov. But now there's this deaf character, there's like Korean, there's Chinese, there's Japanese. They're all like speaking different languages to each other. And especially being someone who doesn't speak any of those languages, like I wasn't sure at first, like how well do they understand each other? Do some of them speak multiple languages? Do they just read the lines and then guess like what the other one does based on like the, the, the structure of it or, or their structural understanding of just the pure text? But I did look up a summary of the play afterwards and it does seem to uh, resonate very much. Like the play of the story very much seems to capture the story of this film. I can quote a little bit of the summary if you want. It's quite enlightening, actually, when it comes to understanding uh, Drive My Car. Yeah, go ahead. So this is from Sparknotes. It says, Uncle Vanya is thematically preoccupied with what might be sentimentally called the wasted life. And the survey of the characters and their respective miseries will make this clear. Admittedly, however, it remains somewhat difficult to organize these concepts into a coherent theme as they belong more to the place, melancholic mood or atmosphere, rather than to a distinct program of ideas. One obvious characteristic of the play is that almost all the characters are consumed with lethargy, boredom and regret over their unsatisfactory lives. They bemoan their old age, mourn the years that they have wasted in drudgery, pine over lost loves and muse bitterly over what might have been if their lots had been different. They thus suffer from a sense of loss without knowing exactly what has been forfeited. Throughout the play, their private reflections burst through the surface of the everyday, giving way to torrents of unhappy introspection. So if that doesn't pretty much sum up, like, <laughs> yeah. drive my car, then I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's a pretty accurate description of drive my car as well. I had no idea of what the play was prior to watching it the first time. I actually have a copy of it. so. I read it. It's pretty short. It's like 60 pages long or something. I read it before watching it the second time. And I didn't identify all of those connections that you can see there in that summary. That summary does a good job of pointing out how like the connection isn't so much in a specific story. Like there are some parallels mm -hmm. like Uncle Vanya. The, there's a variety of different characters. There's like a professor who's like 
has dedicated his life to writing and the arts, and that there's more working class characters that are kind of like serving him and enabling him to pursue his art. And we see that reflected like in the movie with this guy who's this playwright and then like a driver. So there's some of that stuff, but like the overarching connection is more like the themes it's exploring or the way it's exploring themes, really, where it's like it's kind of all over the place. There's a lot of characters just like throwing out ideas. And the biggest thing to me that I found interesting was in the play, it really feels like everybody's like talking past each other and not even listening to each other. A character will say a bunch of lines and then the other characters like almost aren't even responding to that. They're just saying their own lines about their own issues. Because especially clear when they don't understand the language of the other person they're acting against. Right. Yes. I didn't know if that was like the basis for this idea of having all the characters speaking different languages, if that was supposed to, you know, be representative of this idea of like hearing each other, but not really understanding or just being all in our own little world and unable to communicate properly or anything like that. I don't know the intention, but it seems like a pretty solid connection there. I also noticed how there's this scene where they are rehearsing the play and the director really insists on them reading the lines with as little emotion as possible. And I don't remember exactly if it was the director of this film that had a similar style of directing or that it was a more general approach that's used in theater uh, directing where they just kind of repeat the lines until they are like mechanically stuck in the, the actor's head and then they save all the emotion for the actual performance. So they kind of like reread the lines until it's like lyrics like of a song that's just they can dream it, they can repeat it over and over and then when they perform the actual play they can really project their own emotion onto the lines and just act it out. Which I'm not sure how it connects uh, to like the rest of the story, but it was interesting to me that this idea of bottling up like emotions till the right moment to express them. Yeah, the film is really dealing like most broadly with this theme of like Kafku, who's putting on the play, kind of the main character, him not being able to accept his pain and accept emotions and just kind of like pushing them away. I don't think we mentioned that we find out in the prologue too that he and his wife had a daughter that died at a very young age. I don't remember the cause, but that dramatically changed their life. And so they were both in grieving because of that. So he has grief related to that and pain that he was unable to accept. And then also the pain of his wife's infidelity that he just kind of tries to ignore. So there's this like, idea of all those things being kind of repressed and pushed down and not accepted. And that ends up kind of becoming the climax of the film as he's through this relationship he develops with this driver, he's able to kind of come to a kind of acceptance on that. But they're also tied to the play and its performances, this idea of like, he doesn't want to play Uncle Vanya. So in the prologue of the film, he's playing the character of Uncle Vanya. And then in the main section, he's putting the play back on and everybody kind of assumes like he's going to play Uncle Vanya. And during the auditions, this young man comes in who he caught with his wife and he was a star in one of her television dramas. So he comes in and auditions for a different role. And instead of casting him for that role, Kafku casts him as Uncle Vanya and everybody's kind of shocked like oh why would you do this you're not playing Uncle Vanya yourself and 
at some point he says something about like the text questions you like the play questions you and it brings out who you really are and he feels like he can't do that at this point in his life he can't play uncle vanya because it would bring out who he really is and he's unwilling to do that which is also linked to this idea of like not accepting his emotions repressing his emotions because in the play uncle vanya is this very depressed character who's fed up with life he specifically feels like he's dedicated his life to this man the professor who is like put his life towards the arts and uncle vanya in the play is saying oh i've given my whole life to allow you to do what you do be this great man and now i'm realizing like it's all for nothing you're it's meaningless your work it doesn't mean anything and he's depressed he's nihilistic all these things and i think those are the feelings that kafku is having to some extent or like the pain he's experiencing but he's not admitting that to himself like he's not allowing him to be that he's and very literally then is is not allowing himself to play uncle vanya in the play yeah so there's some other things i want to talk about one is like the use of the car in this movie i made a video it was pretty early on, one of my earlier videos, but one that I'm still pretty proud of was a examination of like the use of cars in movies. And this is a movie that uses the car in a very interesting way. You spend a lot of time in the car. It's part of the name of the movie. Did you have any thoughts about the way the car is used here? Yeah, one of the first things that really got to me was like how it's perfectly captured, like when someone else drives your car, like there's a kind of invasiveness to it like someone sits down in your seat and they'll adjust the chair and like the mirror and like you're like no that's perfectly like fitted to my comfort so i like there's this kind of like almost a transgression almost where she violates his safe space in his own vehicle or at least the driver that's assigned to his car which i really like that's i thought that's an interesting metaphor for how she enters into his space without his consent almost and then as they go along like there's also just something so relaxing about like the quiet shots of them yeah. just driving and not even like talking that much because at first the main character still continues with the repetitions of his lines and the driver is kind of just quietly sitting there and listening i think there's also something very interesting about the way a car like sits persons and how what that means for their interactions because they are never like face to face with each other like the driver always has the eyes on the road whereas like the passengers they are more free to look around and in this case i think he was sitting in the back most of the time so he's looking at the back of her head which creates this unequal like relation as they are communicating towards each other but that can also be something that's very freeing or like liberating that you can express yourself without feeling like the gaze of someone else that might be judging you. So in that sense, I understand that it's a very inviting space for their relation to come about and to blossom. So yeah, I think that's basically my thoughts on the car itself. I think it was a perfect metaphor almost for how their relation starts and how it enables them to connect with each other, even though it seems so quiet and, um, accidental almost his journey towards like accepting her driving mirrors like his journey towards acceptance overall like at the beginning one of the elements is that he doesn't like his wife's driving 
And so he admits at a certain point that he really likes this driver's, her name is uh, Watari. He really likes her driving and he kind of like slowly is giving up the control that he like holds onto of this car. But kind of a side note, I love how the relationship between them unfolds. It's one of the things I like about the pacing and how this movie uses running time is like you get to see their relationship develop in this very like tiny little bits at a time. They don't really interact at first. They just play the tape. It's very curt. And then he's like, doesn't want her to wait in the cold. So he's like, hey, you can wait in the car. And she's like, no, I don't want to do that because I know how much you care about the car. And he's like, no, it's fine. Yeah, no. And then there's tiny little steps that they're taking each way. And they're both hesitant. Like she doesn't want to cross any lines. Like at one point, she's hearing all this stuff about the play. And there's one scene where she starts like asking some questions. And then he's like, oh, you could come like sit in on rehearsal. And she's like immediately is like, no, let's put let's put on the tape. She's like afraid of that connection as well. And eventually he moves to the front seat and she's just becoming more and more a part of his life because she's just present there for all this like drama that's happening in his life. And one of the big scenes is this like moment where he ends up having this conversation. There's a whole arc of the story where he kind of reconnects with his wife's lover that he caught who's in the play and he gets to hear the end of this story that she would always tell in the middle of the night it had kind of ended on a cliffhanger and he never heard the end of it and then he hears the end of this story through this guy that whole scene happens in the car so like the driver is also experiencing that and hearing that so he's getting this like look into his life. And at the end of the film, they go on this road trip together and bond. Anyway, I, I'm just explaining what's happening in the film at this point. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> I like how that slow connection is portrayed very like non-verbally throughout the film. Like you get to see it happen a little bit at a time over the course of like two hours. That's a beautiful moment also where they smoke a cigarette together and then do not get the smoke in the car. They both have their hands up through the roof window, which I thought was really nice. You mentioned at one point there's a scene with his wife's lover. And what do you think his relation is to the main character? Like, why does he invite that person into his life? Like, what do you think he's trying to get out of that relationship? Or is he trying to, like, punish him? Or is he trying to get something from him? Or, like, find some closure in from his point of view? What do you think his role is in the story? I don't know. I've been thinking about that, and I'm not sure exactly what his motivation is at first. I thought maybe he's looking for closure there because he does end up getting some amount of closure through him. But then also when that guy reveals that he had been hearing the stories as well, that kind of comes as a revelation to Kafku. So I don't think he was expecting to get that out of him. At the beginning, especially with the casting him in the role of Uncle Vanya, it's maybe more of a punishment type thing or he's just kind of like there's an interesting exchange that they have earlier in a bar where the young man is kind of like expressing his love for Kafka's wife and he tells him like I'll tell you what you're thinking because we love the same person we share the same pain and he's kind of trying to tell this young guy like look you feel the loss of her death because like you slept with her a couple times or something but like that's nothing compared to 
the pain that I'm experiencing. And I think there's this sense that he has of like playing Uncle Vanya and having to memorize this text and like having it question me, like interrogates me and brings out these things within myself and like exposes me to my own pain or something. I don't know. And he is wanting to like put Takasuki through that. So I don't know how conscious that is supposed to be to the character, but there's definitely a sense of like provocation there on some level, I think. Yeah, I also felt like there was maybe some mutual envy or like resentment between them. Like Takatsuki, he is jealous of the main character, uh, Kafuku, who has had this 20 year long relation with this woman that he loves. While at the same time, he feels like insecure maybe about himself because apparently he wasn't enough for his wife. Like she still sought out this young man. And as we learn later, like other men as well, because he mentions he's caught her wife before, like having different affairs. So he feels like there's something about her that he doesn't fully understand or that's not like accessible to him that maybe those lovers have like more inside of like they, they get to see a side of her that he doesn't know. So yeah, I think maybe at first, as, as you said, there's maybe an element of punishment or like maybe even a sort of from the main character's point of view, a kind of like emotional self-harm, like he's seeking out a certain kind of pain, knowing that he's not fully engaging with it or something like that. But I think it's a very like emotionally complex situation that's going on between them and just the film as a whole, because going back to their marriage for a little bit, because as you mentioned, they had a child together who died. And then he mentions that since then, their relation had never been the same. Like they were both unable to deal with their grief together. So there was this obstacle that came in between them that they apparently couldn't resolve, which was sort of resolved when they started having sex again and she started narrating the stories he mentions that as a turning point and that became like a balance between them that allowed them to live happily and so that's why he also accepted like the infidelity because apparently that might have been part of the process he mentioned at some point like what i feared most was losing her if she found out i knew we wouldn't have been able to maintain our balance in doing that he's also kind of repressing this part within himself to maintain something that he believes exists between them and is too fragile to be like affected by his own emotions like if he would confront her like the balance would shatter and their relation would be over so it makes sense from that point of view that he's not trying to confront her about it we also talked about the story that his wife mentions to him and that the young man uh, gets to know the other side of or like the, the I can't remember what the exact story was about again. It started off which uh, she sees, envisions herself or like a fictional character who burgles into this home and keeps leaving like little pieces of herself somewhere. This young woman is breaking into the house of this boy or man that she is like in love with and leaving like tokens for him and just kind of being weird, basically. And she's doing this repeatedly that part of the um, movie is the most um, Murakami-esque part of the story. Mm -hmm. For a Murakami story, it's pretty normal. But then you have this weird story where this girl and she imagines she's a lamprey, which is like a fish that is kind of parasitic on other fish. But instead of latching on to a fish and being a parasite, she holds on to a stone on the bottom of the river and just kind of slowly dies. And the story ends on a cliffhanger where She's in the room and she takes all her clothes off and she's kind of like acting out this sexual fantasy that she's had but never allowed herself to. And she hears somebody coming up the stairs and she's about to be caught. 
And then that's where the story ends. And Kafku never gets the end of the story because his wife dies. And then he gets to hear the last bit of the story from Takasuki. And the last bit is the person coming up the stairs is another burglar. And the young woman who's been breaking into this house kills him and leaves his dead body there and like flees the scene or something. And the next day she goes to school, I think, and she sees the young man whose room she was breaking into and he's just acting the same. Like there's nothing about it on the news. Everyone's just behaving as if everything is normal and as if nothing has changed. And then she goes back to the house and the only thing that's different is there's a security camera now. And she kind of has this feeling of like, uh, am I crazy? Did like, did that not happen? Like, why is nothing different? She goes up to the security camera and admits that she killed the burglar. But there's this idea, I think, present in that, that that story is like relaying how Odo, the wife who's relaying these stories, felt about her infidelity, that she like maybe knew that Kafku knew that she was cheating on her. And she was deeply uncomfortable with the fact that he was just pretending everything was okay and just like acting like as if everything was normal. And he's wanting to maintain this like, oh, everything's the same. I don't want to upset the balance kind of thing. And for his wife, she was like, why are we acting like this is fine? But she's only able to express that like kind of unconsciously through this story that she's relaying to other people in her sleep. There's an interesting connection there too, where Takasuki says to Kafku uh, that he and Odo are doing the same thing. Like Odo is telling the story in her sleep and Kafku is making these plays. And I think that's connected to the idea that the film is exploring generally too about like art and a text interrogating us and the dialogue between like how working through something like this or writing can kind of like bring these things to the surface that you then have to deal with or that, you know, you encounter, you have to face, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I had a similar interpretation of that last bit of the story that it felt like a little bit obvious to me that the wife had some sense of what Kafka knew about her infidelity and that she felt like she had metaphorically killed him. She had like hurt him deeply and she doesn't face any consequences for it for which makes her like spiral into her own little crisis of like what's going on here and perhaps like putting herself in the same position that Kafka did where she's afraid to like engage with it because it may destroy like what's going on uh, or what they have left between them. I think the insinuation there too is that that's likely what she was going to talk about which I guess is already there subtextually, but like what we find out later in the film is he had this feeling that she was going to admit the infidelity to him or want to talk about it. And he didn't want to go back to talk to her and showed up late and like kind of blames himself in part for her death because he wasn't there when she had this hemorrhage because he was afraid of like facing what she wanted to say to him. So... I'm curious how you feel about this idea of artistic expression surfacing these kind of unconscious struggles or things that we're grappling with, or this idea of like a text, whether that's a movie or a book or something like that, like interrogating us and questioning us. And if you've had experiences with things like that, where working on something artistically kind of like brings things to the surface, or if like revisiting 
the same thing, you know, movie or whatever has done that with you, where you feel like you have almost a relationship with this thing over time, where it starts to not literally speak to you, but in a sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think when it comes to like creative efforts, I think my making video essays for like my channel, like Stories of Old, that's been a huge life changer also on a personal level, because spending that much time like interrogating themes and philosophies and movies and ideas and eventually like my own emotions and attachments and beliefs and all that sort of stuff. It definitely helped me to be more articulate in like real life too, because I was known for being like a pretty private person before I started making these videos. And I'm still today, but I do feel like people get to know more of me through my videos. And I subsequently feel more comfortable like sharing myself as a result of it. There was actually an interesting disconnect that happened at one point where I had this minor conflict with my girlfriend because she felt like I was one person in my videos and then another in real life. So I wasn't expressing myself in the same way in real life as I was in my videos, which I thought was really interesting. And we worked it out, fortunately, but it was a sign of that I was putting some stuff into my videos that I couldn't express or didn't know how to express in any other form or like way. And when it comes to my own consumption of stories, there's this same kind of element where I do revisit films again and again because they engage like emotions within me that aren't necessarily triggered as strongly by real life events, which also has its weird little quirks where I can feel more moved by a fictional story than something that happens in real life sometimes. It certainly is like a bit of a strange relation, one that's always kind of been evolving. I'm trying to be like as conscious about it as I can to make sure it involves in like a constructive way instead of like I'm bottling up certain things in real life and then only putting them out in another form. Like I'm trying to maintain this sort of web of connections to make sure everything stays in tune as much as I'm possibly able to. Also for the benefit of those who like live in my actual environment, like family, friends, girlfriend, that sort of right. stuff. Yeah. How about you? I think I've definitely experienced it on some level, you know, I don't have concrete examples of like movies, but like I've definitely felt the experience of watching stuff over time, interacting with it and feeling like it brings up certain questions or interrogates aspects of myself that I then think about and you know then you come back to the same movie and you see it differently because you're looking at it through a different lens. One example is like I noticed over time that I was connecting with a lot of movies like this one that were about like loss and death and people like dealing with grief and I was like this is strange because it's not like, oh, I connect with that because I've had a major loss in my life that I've been grieving. I haven't had someone close to me who's died. But then I think like I wrote a screenplay about those same themes and kind of through that process realized that my connection to that subject matter has much more to do with like philosophically exploring the idea of just like suffering and death and like the finiteness of life and I think that's true in this movie where it's like they're very interconnected. Grappling with loss ends up often bringing up these issues of like what is ultimately meaningful or, you know, how do we find meaning in life in spite of suffering or all these things. 
And I was very interested in those ideas and movies about death specifically just end up exploring those ideas often. So my YouTube work has gotten more philosophical over the years or like I'm dealing with themes more. But for a while, that was the exception and the norm was more like technical and, oh, here's how you do this, which that kind of stuff wasn't really like forcing me to kind of deal with anything deep or really giving myself an avenue to express things or, or play with that. But I've started to do that kind of thing more. And it is interesting. That's definitely something to be conscious of. You don't want to lean on that too much as a crutch. And that's even kind of explored in this movie where you get this sense that like this guy's dedicating his life to this play. He can act Uncle Vanya. He can listen to it over and over again, memorize it, all this stuff. But like what allows him to connect with his pain and suffering and move beyond that is when in the car he stops listening to the tape and he starts talking to the driver and they start connecting personally and he kind of takes an interest in her life that's when he like comes face to face with his actual emotional reality and moves past it and like processes it. Yeah, I think that comes back to the idea of those actors mechanically learning the lies versus them actually performing them with emotion and allowing themselves to be changed by them. Yeah. I've had the same thing that you mentioned where you said you seek out films that deal with themes that you've not necessarily experienced in your own life. But I wonder to what extent it is that I feel like I'm emotionally preparing for such events. In that sense, I'm also kind of wary about them sometimes that I don't feel like because I've like vicariously experienced something like a significant death in a movie or like the concept of the loss of a loved one, whether that actually prepares me for the real deal if that is ever to happen, which fortunately hasn't yet in my case. But I think more generally, it's also... I tend to seek out themes and vibes and feelings that people simply do not really talk about with each other that also kind of transcend language in a way that go beyond like the superficial emotions of like happy, sad, anger, and more about, as you also mentioned, like the existential stuff and the search for meaning and the longing for something more in your life or feelings of regret that are hard to define in a meaningful way in real life, or at least like, you, I guess you can have conversations about them, but it's not quite the same as living through a story that accurately deals with them. And I wonder too, in what sense Drive My Car has become such a popular one. Like we mentioned in the beginning that it's such a, like a mood piece. It, it touches on very, a specific type of feeling that you need to tune into. And apparently a lot of people did. So I'm kind of wonder what that says about where we are at, like culturally, like what does it say about how we are feeling like all of us <laughs> yeah, right now? Yeah. And our inability maybe to be like talking about that. There's definitely a lot of people who are dealing with like a sense of loss over the last couple of years that they might not be able to exactly like place a finger on what that is. You know, even if they go like, oh, I lost time or a loved one or my sense of security because of covid or any number of things the last several years have been tumultuous for a lot of people so i think there's like a vague sense of loss for a lot of people but like there's a difficulty in talking about that because it's not as tangible and immediate as being like oh yeah like this person died that is very close to me it's hard to define because it's maybe more nebulous and distant from us in a sense 
but it still is impacting us. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we're looking for ways to like connect with that emotion or engage with it. This is one of the, the reasons I love movies is because there's some of these ideas that are really actually very hard to explore like in words like it's one of the reasons philosophy a lot of times is so like inaccessible is because like to try to express a very specific sometimes almost paradoxical like sense of something you kind of have to talk around it in circles endlessly and like you can't quite exactly express it but then there's you can make a movie where you have like a line reading one of the things that gets me specifically in this movie is the very end scene, the kind of end monologue. Uncle Vanya says, I'm miserable. He says something about being like miserable. It's also translated as potentially like unhappy, but he like says it with a smile on his face at the end of the movie, Kafka's performance of it. And there's a complexity that can be communicated in that visually and in through performance that is very intuitive when you see it. But that can take a much longer to express through words, just as like philosophy or psychology. Yeah, I guess it's a bit like the embracing of not having everything resolved in life. Right. Because I, I made a video once, it's called Why We Can't Save Those We Love, which is also about the fundamental inaccessibility of those who are closest to us, those we should know and understand. And... When I was watching this film, especially there's a monologue by the lover of the main character's wife, he says, but even if you think you know someone well, even if you love that person deeply, you can't completely look into that person's heart. You'll just feel hurt. I was like, oh, that's, yeah. I already made this video. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you make a video about like a more general theme and then it starts working prescriptively at movies that come out later. But the reason I bring it up is because I think this movie also offers an interesting counterpoint, because whereas my conclusion was sort of embrace that you don't know everything about the other person, that there's a part of them that will remain a mystery to you. I really loved how at one point the driver, Watari, she mentions after the main character, like he expresses his whole story to her, she then replies to him. Would it be so hard for you to like accept everything about her as genuine, that maybe there was nothing mysterious about her? Would it be hard to think that she was simply like that, that she loved you dearly and that she sought out other men constantly? Don't seem to contradict each other or sound deceptive to me. Is that strange? I'm sorry. Got me thinking about maybe this whole idea of us trying to reach for some deeper essence in another person might be part of like the mistake that we expect something more from them, that even though maybe all we need to know is already like right there at the surface. I liked how this film approached that and gave you some resolution to something that cannot fundamentally be resolved, but still enough for you to let it rest. Which is also, I think, one of the final lines uh, with Esther, the deaf girl. She performs this monologue from Uncle Vanya, which uh, is all about how we will finally find rest after death or something like that. The end of Uncle Vanya, which is basically also the end of this movie has a very like almost stoic kind of it's a kind of existentialism but it's colored by the russian elements of philosophy or it's it sounds when you read it more like an embrace of suffering i would characterize my understanding of similar ideas more as like an acceptance of your own pain or suffering but it's very much this sense of just like accepting what 
is and in Uncle Vanya specifically like doing the work just like we will work in spite of our pain we will just keep doing the work either for ourselves or for others and that monologue is reflected to the driver who has had all this pain and suffering in her life and is just doing this work in a sense like for both of these characters the coping mechanism has been the work putting on the play or driving the car like just in spite of whatever's going on so like acceptance is kind of the big thing that's being emphasized here whether that's just like another person or our own suffering it's just opening yourself up to accepting that moment or your inability to know or whatever it is to your point about the other people and the contradiction there and just accepting what feels like a contradiction is maybe how they were Latari saying that to Kafku comes on the heels of her like telling the story about her mother who abused her but then also like became this other personality Sachi who was like a child who was her only friend and there was like a conflict in that where she was being both abused and nurtured by this same person so she in saying that also has this very like immediate connection to this idea of like these two conflicting things coming from the same place and that's an idea that's being explored throughout the film where like yeah nothing is super simple here and straightforward and can be distilled down to this one you know easy concept that we can oh i get it now and then like you have closure and that's the end of the story it's like it's very complicated and messy and painful the whole time yeah and that's in, in a lot of ways how life is for us yeah to some extent it's also deconstructing the idea of this consistent and wholesome self within right. us and because we all carry like contradictions within us like we're all hypocrites to some extent even though we don't always have explanations for them or even reasons for doing them like i know like i have certain contradictions within me but i'm not sure like there's some deeper element that's guiding them both or like that's giving shape to them like sometimes things are just like what they are or maybe it's just like convenience or like desire or, or fear or whatever but i'm not sure like this this secret deeper like essence that is somehow like in control of it all and that gives rise to these contradictions in the same way we might look for meaning by seeking like an essence outside of us mm -hmm. that like explains like this is the cause of everything we might look for that in other people and be like if we can point to something like that's the source that's the cause of all of this and i can understand that then it has meaning and then because it's meaningful it's less painful to me because like there's an elimination of randomness but what you're describing is almost like an applied existentialism to other people or even maybe to yourself of saying like there are these contradictions here and if i try to fit it all into this very neat little like narrative that is like okay yeah there's a clear source of all these things like everything i do is coherent and meaningful and also for other people there's not just things that happen it's maybe less painful or easier to accept or whatever because that's what we want i guess <laughs> yeah just i'm thinking about some examples but the most simple thing would be like i have the ambition to work and to make like videos and to do like writing and i have these great ideas that i want to express but at the same time i can also be like a lazy person that just <laughs> right. doesn't want to do any work and so how do those two exist in balance with each other is like one of them a sign of like my deeper truer like desire or is it just 
that those different elements happen to exist mostly independently inside of myself and that they are striving for dominance or like for victory over one another? I don't know. I think what Drive My Car would posit is that if you try to fight one of those, it will create suffering. The road to maybe not the least pain, but the least amount of suffering in your life is to accept the presence of both of those. That's really where this movie goes ultimately that I think makes it so impactful to me. The ideas that are in acceptance and commitment therapy, which borrow a lot from a lot of wisdom traditions, religions, philosophies, like all kinds of things, um, and just like applies it to more modern therapeutic contexts, have really changed the way I look at certain things over the last couple of years. Yeah. And the end of this movie like really does a great job of embodying and expressing some of those ideas. The one line he says of like, I should have been hurt properly when he's standing out on the snow. It's like the struggle to not feel the pain that we feel from things that hurt us. He's recognizing in that moment that like his attempt not to be hurt by this thing ended up causing all this other hurt and suffering in his life. And I think that's true in so many cases where it's like we try desperately to avoid all kinds of like pain and and hurt from things that hurt us but it's like that resistance or avoidance of that pain can lead us to do all these things mentally or physically or whatever it is that ultimately like end up creating more suffering in our life in the long run and paradoxically the only way to escape that is to allow yourself to feel the hurt for the initial thing that you're trying to escape or avoid or, or run away from. Mm -hmm. And when you allow yourself to do that, then you can move past it and you can give your car to the driver. <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> I love how he expressed that he doesn't just grieve his wife. He isn't just sad about her passing, but also to finish the quote you started, like he said, I should have been hurt properly. And then he goes on to say, I let something genuine slip by. I was so deeply hurt to the point of distraction. But because of that, I pretended not to notice it. I didn't listen to myself, so I lost Otto forever. Now I see I want to see Otto. If I do, I want to yell at her, berate her for lying to me all the time. I want to apologize for not listening, for not being strong. I want her back. I want her to live. I want to talk to her just once more. I want to see her, but it's too late. There's no turning back. There's nothing I can do. That one hit deep for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a great scene. It's very well orchestrated too. If you can get through the 40 minutes of driving scenes <laughs> that are just like very calm and like when I said earlier that I almost fell asleep watching it, that wasn't like a this movie is boring. It just being in a car and just kind of like headlights passing overhead and the sound mm -hmm. of the road. And like, it just has these moments that are very meditative and quiet. It's like this hypnotizing effect of just, especially if you're a passenger, you're just like staring out the window and there's this constant like white noise from the engine and like the other cars. And yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> this movie fully embodies that. If you make it through all of that and you're still awake and you get to this end scene, it delivers. It has a lot to give. Mm -hmm. So I'm a fan of Drive My Car. I think this is ironically a movie that will probably end up being one of those that I come back to like periodically. I have this feeling watching it of like there's a lot there that feels like it's 
below the surface like even just talking about it now i was thinking of so many things like oh that's connected to that and you know these things have an interplay so i love it yeah i'm i'm also like wanting to see it again not right now but like i look forward to like sitting down when i'm in the right mood and putting this on and just going into that whole atmosphere again yeah uncle vanya is a good read too it's worth reading i really enjoyed the play you get actually a decent amount of it in this movie maybe like 20% of the play. Mm -hmm. It might not be that much, but but it's all mixed up and decontextualized. And the, the really interesting thing that I realized after reading the play and rewatching it was that there's certain moments in the car where there's certain lines that are said and you can't quite tell like, is that a line from the play or is it like something that he's saying? The movie and the play in some ways start to blur together, which I find is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And which is something that like personally I love because in a lot of ways, the work that we do as video essayists is about like taking these other sources of material and like remixing them and like recontextualizing them and examining them and trying to like put other things together, like build a story out of pieces of other stories. And so it's fun to see somebody else doing that in this context of just like remixing this play and applying it almost in the same way that I would dip out of my narration in a video and quote the film I'm talking about. There's these moments where like you come out of the movie and quote the play and then go back into the movie. So drive my car is a video essay. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't just adapt or like take uh, over the play. It's actually based on multiple different stories from Murakami. Drive my car is this short story in a larger collection, but the director from the film takes elements from some of the other stories as well. Which I thought was interesting. But yeah, I, I like how you compare it to a video essay and how... I guess it's also about just the general idea of updating stories in a way that reshape them to your own personal significance and then hoping that others will respond to it as well. And in that process, you kind of keep stories like alive. You keep them relevant and meaningful, I guess. That's one of the things I love about Murakami's writing is he quotes a lot of text. He talks about movies and music and stuff like in his books which is something that like i find is very interestingly absent from a lot of contemporary stories even though like media and art often is such a big part of our lives in the modern world we tend to like leave that stuff out of our stories yeah i love stories that examine the role that those things play or like include the role that those things play in our lives I guess a lot of stories do it more implicitly, like they'll pay homage, but not directly right. like talk about it in the text of the film itself, except maybe Tarantino. He does yeah, both. There's, there's, <laughs> there's some out there. Yeah. In some cases, the homage gets so explicit that you might as well just be like, <laughs> I'm quoting this. I think if you can remix something successfully and add some like a personal touch to it or like a personal experience and maybe even like update it to like specific social or like cultural trends that are going on in the world right now, then you can perfectly well end up with a great story like this. Yeah, I agree. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to check us out on our creator-owned streaming service Nebula, where you can listen to all of our episodes a week early. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula is by signing up for CuriosityStream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more, just follow the link in the show notes, and we'll see you again next time.